0: good morning let's begin with a word of prayer father god we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather in the name of your son jesus to listen to the word which is proclaimed that you have inspired and directed by your holy spirit to be recorded for the benefit of this church and this generation and in this time and for the church of all times Now we pray that the Holy Spirit will superintend both the proclamation of this word and its reception, that Christ here is glorified, that we are changed, that we are nourished. Father, we ask you to speak to us now through the agency of your spirit, and in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Romans 8, 12. My daughter, Carrie, has had a real open house, uh, open door policy, and she has, because of that, she's uh, fostered many different uh, children in her home, including doing uh, respite care for for infants. She's even, and is now, taken in other people's dogs to to care for them while they're away. On Facebook, she's been real open and vocal about uh, welcoming any unwanted children. Um, Four years ago this very week, uh, she received notification that there was a a woman who was pregnant. Uh, She was a a drug user and she didn't want her child. Um, Because the mother was a drug user, the child would be born addicted to the drugs and the father was unknown. About three weeks before this date four years ago, the mother decided she'd had enough. She was not willing to carry the baby to full term. She wanted it out right now because she wanted a fix and she couldn't wait any longer. She wanted them to get the baby out. So Carrie had made a connection with her brother-in-law and his wife to take the child. And so Four years ago this week, they crossed Washington State in a snowstorm to get here in time um, for the baby to be born. Um, The birth mother didn't even want to hold her baby after he was born. So after tons of legal expenses and forms and formality, the boy became their child. He was adopted into their family as their own son. The curious thing is... He's no relation to them whatsoever, but he looks very much like the parents and the one natural child that they have. So this little boy who just celebrated his fourth birthday this week is dearly loved and integral part of that family. Now when I was growing up, maybe you did this too, we used to tease our siblings by telling them they were adopted. Did you ever do that? (laughs) What you mean is you're part of the family, but you're not really part of the family. You're, you're adopted, and so we used to tease each other like that, something less than genuine. Now, I mention all of this because it surprisingly has absolutely nothing to do with the text that we are looking at today. <laughs> but it does illustrate my point. In um, Romans, if you'll turn there to Romans chapter 8, verse 12, we are talking about adoption into the Lord's family. Romans eight twelve. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, So for some people today, and like I was telling you, this was true in my family, the whole concept of adoption conveyed an attitude of being a second class member of the family, that you had a different lower status. But that's not true of adoption in Paul's day because, like I said, that illustration of adoption has nothing to do with our text. Because in Rome and in Greece, the time of Paul's day, remember Paul is a Roman citizen and he's writing to Roman Christians in Rome and so he's very familiar with their culture of the day. He's writing about a a, a process, actually a legal proceeding that they are very familiar with. Now, in Rome's day, Romans did not adopt babies. You know, in America, we adopt cute little cuddly babies. Well, they're usually cute, but sometimes they're not. But in Rome, in Rome, they didn't adopt children. So you have to dismiss the idea that somebody left a baby on their doorstep and they adopted them into their family. In Roman adoption, we're talking about adopting grown men or at least teenagers. They were adopted to a very high position or privileged position in their family. Now, in, in the Roman culture, the father, of course, had absolute control over his family. And it was important to him to pass on the family name, the family business, the family heritage to someone who was worthy to bear that name. Well, he might decide his children aren't worthy to bear that name, and so he would look for probably a teenager who he was especially fond of, who he felt that that person would honorably carry out his name. And he would legally adopt this adult man to be in this privileged position because the adopted son had authority over the rest of the family. He would be the one, he would be the heir to receive the family title. And they would adopt the, someone who had the uh, desired abilities, the character uh, the, the, that, uh, that the, the father thought would, would uh, best reflect the, the nature of the name that he wanted to carry on. So like I said, this was a this was a very complicated legal proceeding of adopting an adult into the family. And the first step of this legal proceeding of adoption was to take this child and sever all of his ties to his former family. You are no longer part of that family. You're not an heir of that family. You are not a leader in that family. You are taken out of that family. Now, the second step was to, Permanently attach him to the new family. And the third step was to dismiss any debts, any obligations, any legal encumbrances that he might have on him. And so those were all eradicated. They once they were settled, they were acted as if they never existed. So those obligations didn't follow the son being adopted. Now this transaction became legally binding and it required the presence of seven witnesses to the process of this adoption. So if ever this adopted son was challenged as being a pretender, these seven guys would be able to say that, that in fact, the, they were carrying out the father's wishes. And so he would then be the recipient of the father's name. Like I said, the Greeks and Romans adopted full-grown men, men with the kind of character they wanted in their son, men to whom they would bestow their title their their business their their surname their their heritage and uh, this was to reproduce as accurately as the man could what he wanted his family to continue on now the word that they used for adoption was was huyo, huyo thesa huyas means adult son and phasa being to place or to have placement. So it literally means to place an adult son. And that's what we find this key phrase in verse 15, which uh, literally translated says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption. And if you have the NIV, the word is sonship. See, the point here is that God wants to adopt us, not to make us simply part of the family, but he wants us to to receive this honored position, this um, privileged position as his son. So he, it begins with taking us out of the family that we did belong to, out of the family of, of of Adam, out of our background, to forgive our indebtedness that we brought with us, and to place us not just in his family, but to place us in the privileged position of heir, son. Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, again, the first step of adoption is to remove the young man from his previous family. That's what God does for us here. We're no longer part of the old Life, the old allegiances we have. We have a new family, a new allegiance. And so Paul begins negatively saying, Brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh. We no longer owe loyalty or obedience um, to our previous life, to our old flesh. What the flesh demands from us still we are in no way obligated to fulfill what the flesh requires of you don't you don't have to do that anymore and we've talked about that at length through the as uh, last few studies of romans that even though we have this old nature we have this the the new man and the old man battling it out you don't have to obey the old flesh but then it poses the obvious next question well then why do we if we don't have to why do we keep giving into it imagine that you, like Maureen, have had the same rotten old boss for decades. (laughs) What, 28 years, Maureen? 25? So imagine you've had the same rotten boss for 25 years, and he has all kinds of demands, run and get me coffee, and do this and do that. Eventually, you get a real job, a better job, and a different employer. And suppose that your former boss, That you've had for the last 25 years calls you up and says, would you make me some coffee? Well, you might be inclined to do so partly out of habit, but the reality is you have a new boss and you owe the the former boss nothing at all. You are not required to obey him. You might, you might out of of habit, uh, you might out of the old remnants of your old nature you might say yes to the flesh, but the reality is you owe them nothing. You are not obligated to do what your old master requires of you. So you don't have to heed the flesh, Paul says. And so he declares, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, if you kill the old life, if you kill the body, you will live. So this word to kill or to put to death is a present tense, meaning it's not something you do once, and you're done with it. It's something that you keep doing. You have to keep killing the flesh. We are not debtors, he said. Now, there's really two metaphors hidden in this verse. So, you are not debtors. You don't owe something to the past life, but you are warriors. The two illustrations, debtors and warriors. You're not debtors. You are warriors. And what does the warrior do? The warrior is slaying, mortifying Killing the desires of the body. The flesh is no longer the master. It is rather an enemy that needs to, that we have to strive against to vanquish that we are victorious. Now this uh, verse in verse 8:13 is a real popular verse that has been through the centuries of Christendom about mortifying. And you get the concept here of killing, mortifying the flesh. And so we've had these all kinds of different processes or, or phrases about mortifying the flesh, mortification of the sin. Um, how, how do you go about mortifying or killing the flesh? You may re- remember that during the Middle Ages, um, the Catholic Church would have monks who believed that if you could simply get away from, physically isolate yourself from the temptations of life, by doing this isolations from, you would be mortifying the flesh. And they would do this by setting aside hours of, of extended periods of time, to prayer of separation from the opposite sex, of uh, obedience to superiors, um, deliberate poverty, which included, you know, eating simple food and wearing uncomfortable clothing and depriving yourself of sleep. If you could do all of these spiritual discipline somehow by doing these things you would be victorious over the flesh you would be mortifying killing the flesh and of course we can't really argue with, the, with some of the things that they're doing it would be good if we had set aside prolonged regular periods of prayer that would be a good thing um, but the reality is that when you start out with some mechanical process it only focuses on the outward actions. It doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change the inner nature. So we have separation from the world, but we really need to be separate in order to live a life in the world. Now, again, the flesh's authority is over. It's been killed at the cross of Christ, and um, that should be in some sense obvious to us. We should realize that if we have, been, if we have put to death the old life, it doesn't have any power over on us. Yet the reality is that even though all of these things are true, somehow it extends to us a great sense of influence that we feel obligated, even though we know intellectually we are not obligated to submit to. I I read a story this week about this. I can't remember what country it was in, you know, Eastern Europe, like Albania or something, where this whole group of people had lived under an evil tyrant all of their life. Finally, the tyrant was overthrown, but they continued to live as if this tyrant still had authority over their lives. And I remember reading about that when Gaddafi was overthrown in Libya, the, the people still felt like they were living under the, uh, the oppression of this evil tyrant. That's the picture I'm trying to communicate to you. You are not under the evil tyrant any longer, but we continue to feel like we, we still are. And that's why we are encouraged to put to death this ongoing action, uh, this constant day-by-day, even moment-by-moment process of renouncing that demand of the flesh on us um, so that we are changed. Now, John Stott offers some helpful ideas, some helpful words on this. He says, Mortification, or putting to death the deeds of the body, is neither masochism, that's taking pleasure in self-inflicted pain, and we see in some, we see this in some regions of Catholicism as well as other religions, nor is it asceticism, that's where you resent, you reject the fact that we have bodies at all, and and you resent the natural appetites of the body, um, such as we see practiced in mystics in Christendom, the Muslims, and Buddhist traditions. It is rather a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil, leading to such a decisive and radical repudiation of it um, that no imagery can do justice except by the term putting to death. And what are we putting to death? It is the use of our bodies, our eyes, ears, mouth, hands, and feet, which serves ourselves instead of God and other people. Jeff Thomas adds, how do we mortify the deeds of the body? The emphasis emphasis is on something that we do rather than something that is done to us. There's no passivity here in which one follows the formula of let go and let God. There's no call for reaching to a certain level of full surrender where sin is no longer an issue in the believer's life, as is taught by some evangelicals. It is not a one-time act or decision in which the believer finally decides to enter into a life of fullness, Rather, mortification is something you must attend to daily because sin is something that affects you daily. And Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that we have to take action against sin when you first feel that stirring of the sin. It's very difficult once you've allowed the sin to have its way in your life to turn around. So you have to turn it at its first stirring. So Lloyd-Jones says, nip it in the bud, deal with it, at once, never let it get even a moment's foothold, expose the thing and say, this is evil, this is vileness, this is the thing that drove the first man out of paradise, pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is, then you will have really dealt with it, you must not merely push it back in a spirit of fear and in a timorous manner. Bring it out, expose it, analyze it, and then denounce it for what it is until you hate it. And then finally, Stott adds, what the world calls life, a desirable self-indulgence, leads to alienation from God, which in reality is death, whereas putting to death all perceived evil within us, which the world sees as an undesirable and self-abnegation, is in reality the way to authentic life. Let's move on. Uh, Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the, the big picture here is that Paul is talking about assurance of salvation. He's trying to establish that we have a a confidence, a basis for our hope, our relationship to God, which is, which is a family relationship. And he elaborates this in verses 15 through 17 using the, the word sons, sonship, children, heirs. He, he's reminding us what it means to be part of the family of God. Now, we need to pause here to say what it is not saying. It is not saying that everyone is a member of God's family. Now, that, that deserves mention just because from our liberal past, we have heard all kinds of, of language which says that we are all sons and daughters of God. And you get the idea of the, of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of men. I'm sure you've heard those expressions. And so we think, consequently, we are all God's children. But that's not how... The Bible refers to um, sons of God or the children of God or the family of God. The sons of God, when it's referring to Scripture, means someone different than everyone else. He's talking about specifically, you look at the text here, the sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit of God. So he's, he's distinguishing between those who are led by the Spirit and those who are not led by the Spirit, and He's coming to the conclusion then that only a portion of humanity can accurately be called God's children. True, God is the the father of us all, but spiritually speaking, he is the spiritual father only of some. And so how does that play out? What does it look like? What does this mean? Uh, Back to verse 15. You did not receive a spirit of Uh, The spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So again here, the chief ideas centered around the word adoption, or if you have the NIV, the word sonship. What uh, this is not talking about is adoption as if you didn't used to belong to the family, but now you are part of the family. It's not like you are Gentiles and you need to get adopted into the Jewish people of God. Let's let's turn in our Bible since we're kind of close to it anyway. Let's look at uh, chapter eleven, beginning in somewhere around verse twenty-two or no, let's look at verse seventeen. There is there is a concept that you were not part of the people of God, the Jewish people, and you are grafted in. We're going to get there in the future. But that's not what adoption is talking about. So in, in verse 17 of chapter 11, um, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a particular partaker of them, uh, with them of the r- rich root of the olive tree. Then, if you look further on, he's talking about how the Jews were discarded or set aside, and you, being the wild olive branch, were grafted in. And the, c- the word comes back up again. Let's v- jump to um, verse 23. Um, if they don't continue in their unbelief, uh, will be graft. You'll be grafted in, for God's able to graft them in again, and. At any rate, the point I'm trying to make is, again, that, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. This grafting in, you didn't belong to the family of God, now you are the family of God, that is talking about becoming part of God's family. That has nothing to do with Adoption. Adoption is something much more than being grafted in. Now, we can appreciate the analogy um, only if we go back again to comparing our concept of adoption in America with the concept of adoption in ancient Rome. Again, we typically adopt cute little toddlers, and the Romans typically adopted competent Um, meritorious, worthy young adults, but God does neither. He's not adopting cute, cuddly children, and He's not adopting good men and women. He's adopting unworthy men and women, and He's adopting them, giving them a privileged place as the heir of the family. That's nothing like our concept of adoption, that God adopts us in spite of our demerits, in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of we don't look like his son. And he gives us a place, he chooses us out of our former life, and he places us not just in the family, he places us as favored sons. Sonship was an enormously important thing in in the Roman Empire, and there was even a ceremony in which the son was acknowledged as the rightful heir in the family. There's this public acknowledgment of it. Did you ever read the book, came out in 1942, uh, Lloyd Douglas, The Robe? In 1953, they made Richard Burton made the movie, The Robe, and it, and it kind of follows after Jesus is crucified, and it follows this guy's life. So in the book, there's this little girl named Lucia or Lucia, depending if you want to speak Italian or or Latin. Um, Lucia has this older brother, Marcellus, and he's about to be acknowledged on his 17th birthday as becoming a man in, in the Roman world. And so Douglas writes... What a wonderful day that was, with all of their good friends assembled in the forum to see Marcellus, clean-shaven for the first time in his life, step forward to receive his white toga. Cornelius Capito and father had made speeches, and they put on the white toga on Marcellus. Lucia had been so proud and happy that her heart had pounded in her throat and hurt, though she was only nine then, and couldn't know much about the ceremony except that Marcellus was expected to act like a man now. And then later on in the book, Marcellus himself is writing to his friend Paulus, and he's talking about this this ceremony, and he says, When a Roman of our sort comes of age, there's an impressive ceremony by which we are inducted into manhood. Doubtless you felt when you went through it as I did, and this was one of the high moments of life. Well do I remember it. The thrill of it abides with me still, how all our relatives and friends assembled that day in the stately Forum Julium My father made an address welcoming me into Roman citizenship. It was as if I had never lived until that hour. I was so deeply stirred, Paulus, that my eyes swam with tears. And then good old Cornelius Capito made a speech, a very serious one, about Rome's right to my loyalty, my courage, my strength. I knew that tough old Capito had the right to talk of such matters. I was so proud that he was there. They beckoned me. And I stepped forward, Capito Capito and my father put the white toga on me, and my life began. See, that's the picture of what we're talking about when someone is adopted, not adopting a baby into your family. It is something that that comes with, with great ceremony, with great legal proceeding, and the one being adopted knows quite well what's going on at this moment, and he's very proud of the fact that he's being adopted. That's what we have here in view here, the w- consciousness of this wonderful privilege that we have to be adopted as God's sons, to be heirs of, with, with this, this wonderful placement. And how does that adoption come about? How does it take place? It comes about closely on the heels of redemption. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. This is my favorite Christmas verse. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So adoption is not willy-nilly. It always falls on the heels of redemption. The Holy Spirit never bypasses the cross in order to adopt us into God's family, to make us His sons. This enmity has first to be removed between God and us before God then chooses and, uh, to bestow this position of adoption or sonship upon us. And it's then that we receive this new name, this new nature, this new inheritance, this new identity in our adoption. Well, we could sit back and say, well, isn't that cool? Isn't that wonderful that God has adopted me, now I'm part of the family? Isn't it cool that God has redeemed me by the work of his son and then placed me in the family by the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that neat how we see the, the triune God at work in this process of adoption? Yet, Paul has something much more in mind for us here. Again, remember the the context here is he's dealing with the assurance that we believers have. How do we know that we really are saved? How do we really know that we are part of the family of God? How do we know? How do you know that you belong to Christ? And then he gives us, a couple of evidences. He says, first, we can know because we've re- received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, "Abba, Father." That's a curious title. This this concept of Abba. You've heard this proclaimed before, and. It's akin to the, it's Aramaic for something like daddy. There's a, there's a, a dearness, a familiarity with it. Not a disrespectfulness, but a, near, a nearness, or in Italian, the word, the word for papa, you know, again, of the familiarity that a young child would have. But it is not disrespectful. I had a friend from this church many years ago who went and ran with the idea of calling God daddy, And so he would pray, referring to God as Daddy. But it was in almost a disrespectful way, an overly familiar way. I think better we should stick to the term Father. Remember that movie Big Jake with uh, John Wayne, 1970, 71? And the movie starts out, Patrick Wayne, John Wayne's real son, is starring as John Wayne's movie son in and he, he's disrespectfully calling his father Daddy. And so he, uh, John Wayne, the father, Big Jake, punches him and knocks him down on the ground, and he says, you can call me Jake, and you can call me Jacob, and, and you can call me Father. You can call me a dirty SOB, but if you ever call me Daddy again, we'll finish this fight. Remember that, that scene? It's, it's, we don't want to refer to God in a way that is flagrantly disrespectful and, and call him daddy, but I think father is appropriate. Father is closer to what um, Paul has in mind here. Do you remember how Jesus addressed God? This was super novel and got him in a lot of trouble. In every time that Jesus prays except one, uh, he always begins by saying father. He refers to God as father. Uh, the only exception is when he's on the cross and he says my god my god why have why have you forsaken me that's matthew 27:46 with that with that exception every other time that jesus addresses god he always addresses him as father a jew would never address god with such a familiar term in fact it got him accused of blasphemy how dare you make god so so familiar, so equal to yourself, it, but yet it was, it, was, uh, it was how Jesus always referred to God. And it doesn't really resonate with us because we always do that. Every time we pray, we address God as Father. But you have to understand how really novel and offensive that was to the Jewish ear that Jesus would pray to God and address him as Father. Or the disciples, remember, they, uh, they say, Jesus, John taught his disciples to pray. Would you teach us to pray? And Jesus says, when you pray, um, Matthew 6, verse 6 or 8 or something like that, when you pray, pray like this. Pray, Father in heaven. Of course, you know, there's all this debate going on right now. Have you ever run into a Jehovah Witness? And you know what's important to them? They say you have to address God by His proper name. And so they have changed the, wherever you see in your Bible, the Lord or God, they have written in Jehovah. So they say you have to address God by the name Jehovah so that we know what God you're talking about. Whatever God's name is, it's not Jehovah. I promise you that because Jehovah is an English mispronunciation of the word Yahweh, because it's, it's, it's only in English. Every other country in the world would have a different name than Jehovah. But it's an English corruption of the word Yahweh, which is a corruption of the Tetragrammaton, where God says, I am that I am. Mo- Remember Moses at the burning bush, who shall I say has sent me? And God says, tell him that I am has sent you. I am that I am. But that was too holy to speak. And so they used a word which, because it was too holy to speak, we don't know what it is today. And so we substitute the word Yahweh. The Jehovah Witnesses have corrupted that into Jehovah. And then you always run into some ill-informed Christian who thinks there's magic or power in saying the name Yahweh, which itself is a corruption of the name. It's not his name. But you run into Christians who think there's power in saying the word Yahweh. What name does Jesus give us to refer to God? Father. How should you refer to the creator of the universe, the God of gods? How should you refer to the great I Am? If you're a believer in Christ, you have been adopted as his sons, and you refer to God as Father, and that's the appropriate name. That's why Jesus always prayed to God as Father, and he tells us when we pray, you address Him as Father, not something magical. It's just Father. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So we have the contrast here between verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, we use the term Father referring to God, there is an internal witness on our part because we can refer to God as Father that we are His sons. Now in verse 16, there's the witness of the Holy Spirit separate from because it says the Holy Spirit Himself bears witness that we are His sons. And how does He do that? I am convinced that the text here is telling us that there is a direct Witness of the Holy Spirit to believers that they are the sons and daughters of God. There is a supernatural, spiritual phenomena, and if you are a believer, you have had this spiritual testimony that you are God's sons and daughters. Maybe you've heard about this, uh, or maybe you've read the reports about the the, uh, revival that's taking place right now in Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. It's big news right now. Um, what's taken place is a little over a week ago, nine or ten days ago, whatever Wednesday was, a week and a half ago. At any rate, there was a revival in this uh, Asbury University during their chapel time. They were at their regular chapel service and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and the service has not yet ended. There was this lingering of the, of the Holy Spirit. Students came and they repented of their sins. They, they worship God. If you've watched the YouTube things, there's no charismania about it. There's this real sense of the awe of the presence of God. There's this real sense of sorrow for their sins. As a consequence of this ongoing revival, hundreds of thousands of students from hundreds of universities and colleges have flocked to this location to witness what's going on, what's taking place at this revival in in this uh, at this Christian college. Uh, There's traffic jams around town. Uh, People of more conservative churches like our own tend to be reflexively skeptical about such reports. And we feel like, well, you know, we've really grown. We've moved on beyond this emotional revivalism of the past and we have moved to more stable forms of, of worship and faith. And it's true. You know, there's actually been several revivals in Asbury. This place has been famous for short-lived revivals. There's one in 1950, one in 1970 that lasted 186 hours, one in 2006 that went on for about four days. Usually what happens in such revivals is... Either charismania overtakes it and hijacks the revival, or people just kind of lose interest in it, peters out after a while anyway. But genuine revivals have sprung up in the church from year to year. Jonathan Edwards was writing prior to the Great Awakening. He was writing in the early part of the 1700s, so prior to the Revolutionary War. And little revivals started breaking out prior to the Great Awakening. These little revivals were breaking out and it was met just as it's met here in this church at this very moment. Some people are feeling very hopeful. Some people are feeling very skeptical. Some people are are jealous because they want that spirit to fall upon us. When you bless Holy Spirit, please don't bypass me. And we pray... I hope this is a genuine moving up, of moving up the Holy Spirit, and I hope it infects this church too. And that was going on in Jonathan Edwards' time. And he wrote a, 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 an essay about the distinguishing marks between a genuine revival and a, a false revival. And he's using as his text 1 John 4, 1, you know, beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so based on that, Edwards came up with nine marks that are not evidence of a genuine revival and five marks or evidences that there is a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. So the nine signs, nine evidences, which are not of the Holy Spirit are, first, that the work is unusual or extraordinary. Two, it produces bodily or emotional effects. Three, it is occasioned by a great deal of noise about religion. Four, great impressions are made on the imagination. Five, one means used is setting an example for following another's. Um, Six, it's accompanied by great imprudences and irregularities in conduct. Remember, he wrote this in 1721 or something like that. Um, Seven, it's intermixed with errors in judgments or delusions of Satan. Eight, some who are worked upon at first later fall away. Nine, it's promoted by ministers who insist on the terror of God's holy law. Now, here's five evidences that are um, signs of a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. One, it raises the esteem of Jesus Christ in their eyes. Two, it operates against Satan's interest by discouraging sin. Three, it causes men to have a greater regard for the Holy Scriptures. Four, it's a spirit of truth which convicts them of the gospel truth. At 5 it's a spirit of love towards God had been. So Edwards follows all of those warnings about those who are passing judgment, sitting on the sideline saying, you know, I don't I don't believe that. And he says, "Let us all be hence warned by no means to oppose or do anything in the least to clog or hinder that work that has lately been carried on in the land, but on the contrary to do our utmost to promote it." Now that Christ has come down from heaven into this land in a remarkable and wonderful work of the Spirit, it becomes all His professed disciples to acknowledge Him and give Him honor. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the one supreme need of the church is revival. It's the only hope. The first duty of Christians so to pray for... It is the first duty of Christians so to pray for revival. And then Jonathan Edwards finishes up by saying a surprising work of God. I long to see it. It's easy for us to be critical, and we think, well, it's another flash in the pan. Um, I, I know that no spiritual experience is ever necessarily validated in itself, and I know, too, that these spiritual experiences are often counterfeited, and they're often very good counterfeits, but the fact that a spiritual experience can be counterfeited and is counterfeited doesn't necessarily invalidate them on its own. And I also know that there are those who seek spiritual experience, they seek Holy Spirit phenomena to the excess, and when they do, they almost always fall into unbiblical ideas and practices. And every experience, every phenomena needs to be tested by the scriptures. But What I'm trying to say is that in spite of those legitimate objections, there still can be a direct experience by the Holy Spirit upon each individual which gives valid testimony that one truly is a child of God. None of us has experienced anything even coming close to what Jonathan Edwards experienced in in the Great Awakening and probably none of us have experienced anything like what's going on at Asbury right now. Um, but let me ask, have you ever had such a spiritual experience where you felt the Holy Spirit's testimony to you that you genuinely were a daughter, a son of God, this overwhelming sense of the presence of God in your life? Haven't you had at some point in your life this inner testimony, spiritually, supernaturally, that you knew genuinely was of God, that that tells you that you were dearly loved by Him. You may have been moved to tears. You may have felt strangely warmed by it. You may have felt some other evidence of of God's presence. This is the common experience that moves people in revival. Revival. Now, I, I admit to great skepticism about this revival, but I truly hope I'm wrong. I truly hope and pray for such movement of the spirit in this church. Let's go back to our text, Romans 8:17. Romans eight seventeen speaks of us being co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And if we are co-heirs with Christ, by implication, we inherit whatever it is that He inherits. What He inherits, we also inherit. But as soon as we ask that, we ask, well, then, what does Jesus inherit? Especially when you think about... What does he get that he didn't already have? What does Jesus inherit where he becomes an heir of God and you become co-heirs with him? Well, we understand that the size of the inheritance is directly related to the riches that the Father has, and so we have to ask, how rich is our Heavenly Father? It's a stupid question because he is rich without limits. He possesses all things. So our inheritance must be so glorious it's beyond our imagination. Paul tells us that we are heirs of God. In other words, we're not just simply heirs of what God has made, and we're not simply heirs of what God has promised. What follows is that we are heirs of God himself. What we inherit from God is God. We inherit God's own peace, God's own patience, God's own pity, God's own strength. The, the substance of everything is our blessing. The security of God's love is our inheritance. The, the riches of, our, of Christ's divine glory we share as co-heirs with Christ. If God is our inheritance, we come right back to the subject matter. How does that give us assurance of our salvation? Because if God has chosen you to be adopted as His heir Nothing is going to dispossess us of our heavenly inheritance. I read a story about this uh, man who was a professing Christian who was facing death. It was coming on him quickly, and he became troubled in his heart. He, he was stunned by how little love he felt for God. He was troubled by that, and he spoke of this, this fear this frustration to a friend of his. And his friend answered him something like this. He said, when I go home from here, I expect to take my baby on my knee and look her in her sweet eyes and listen to her charming prattle. And tired as I am, her presence will rest me. For I love that child with unutterable tenderness. But she loves me little. If my heart were breaking, it would not disturb her sleep. If my body were racked with pain, it would not interrupt her play if i were dead she would forget me in a few days besides this she's never brought me a penny but as but as a constant expense to me i'm not rich but there's not enough money in the world to buy my baby how is it does she love me or do i love her do i withhold my love until she knows that she loves me am i waiting for her to do something worthy of my love before extending it she's a practical illustration about how God loves you because He chooses to and not because you deserve it. So that brings us back to the whole concept of adoption, which in the Roman world, a worthy young man is is, is adopted into the family. He's chosen by the Father specifically to receive this position of honor as his heir. And we have... In juxtaposition to that, the concept of adoption of our days where a family chooses a baby and welcomes them into their family as this young man who celebrated his fourth birthday this last Wednesday. Is that right, Wednesday, Connie? And he is an integral part of their family. And yet, when we talk about being adopted by God, when we adopted to be co-heirs with Christ, It's much more than just being admitted into the family, much more than being brought in as if we were equal to everyone else, as nice as that is. In adoption for us, God chooses us, men and women, in spite of our sins, in spite of our foibles, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our demerits, and He bestows upon us a place, a position of incredible honor and and dignity and worth. And we receive not just membership into this family, we receive a title and a status, not as family members, but as favored sons. Let's pray. We pass over this concept so quickly because it's so clouded by our concept of adoption in our culture, in our time, that we see it simply as being equal to, added into the family of faith as the Jews were. But it's much more than that. And I pray, God, that we begin to understand this great privilege, this great honor that you have bestowed upon us. When we begin acting as worthy recipients of this title and position as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus, I pray that you will cause us to think on these things through this week and to respond with praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us for this last song.